HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right. Morning, everyone. Um, I can't tell you what a pleasure it is for me to speak to you today. Plantorama is a conference that is really near and dear to my heart. Um, and I'm excited to make the case for encouraging urban biodiversity and and really explain why it's important and even critical that we make space for wildlife in our cities. But what I'm gonna spend most of my time today explaining are the techniques that we've developed at Brooklyn Bridge Park to do just that. And they're really still experimental and we're still really in the process of learning, but I think we're at the point now where we've learned some things that we're excited to share because they seem like they're working. as well as, and arguably more importantly, the methods that we've been using to learn those things. So we practice what we call ecological horticulture, and even though it's all organic, it's a really different practice from organic gardening, and I'll get into the differences between those two things. Um, and I have to say, it's really exciting for me to talk about the work that we do at Brooklyn Bridge Park in Brooklyn. Um, I know that most of you are quite familiar with the park, but I'm hoping that today I can give you a different way to see it. So Brooklyn Bridge Park is a massive experiment. Um, To put it in context, we're a brand new post-industrial park in the middle of the biggest city in the country. This is Pier 1, of course. And the park is built on reclaimed shipping piers. This is just a little bit behind the screen, so... Um, we'll see what happens. So this is Pier 6. Yeah. This is Pier 6 right here. Um, Pier 5, Pier 4 fell into the water, Pier 3, Pier 2, Pier 1. And every pier has an upland as well. And then we round the corner to Dumbo, and you can see Empire Fulton Ferry, Main Street, and there's even a whole section of the park that isn't even on this map. So it's absolutely massive. This is the largest public works project in Brooklyn since Prospect Park was built. Um, It was, and we're now about 90% complete. The park was uh, designed and is designed by Michael von Valkenburg and Associates, and it's been in construction for well over a decade, and in fact, this summer, we're celebrating our 10-year anniversary of Piers 1 and 6 being open for 10 years. We're gonna have a big party, so I hope to see you there. Um, But the parkland used to be these warehouses, which looked like this, and they were mostly taken down, and now we have this. Um, which means that everything, all the soils, all the plants, everything except for one tree and a bunch of steel frames was brought onto the site. Um, Of course, we tried to use as many reclaimed materials as possible. There's wood from demoed buildings, fill from subway tunnels, and even granite from bridges in Queens. But what I'd like to impress upon you today is that it's all been built. So keep that in mind for when we talk about ecology. And it's been quite a success. Um, We have five million people who visit the park between um, labor and memorial and labor days, um, sometimes for science events like this star watching evening. We host public art that is genuinely beautiful and engaging, 
But with construction and with people being as they are, uh, there's a constant disturbance in the landscape and it's always, always changing. It's New York City. Um, and when I said that the park was an experiment, I meant that the designers, the contractors, the gardeners, were all trying new things. We have bioswales that catch water and recirculate it for irrigation in the park. We have these giant sound attenuating berms at one-to-one -one grades, as well as the freedom to experiment with unique strategies when those berms get covered in thistle. Um, two of these goats, Horatio and Eyebrows, went on to be the goats of Prospect Park. So these are like the Brooklyn goats <laughs> that move around. Um, but the point is that we're all experimenting and learning together. And as you saw before, the park is really large. Uh, it's officially 85 acres, which includes well over 15 acres of garden bed, which means that for the 11 full-time gardeners that we are fortunate enough to have right now, each person has over an acre of garden area that they need to manage. So it's a good thing that the park aesthetic is really wild. Um, we don't, uh, with, we don't have the, um, the beds don't get the same amount of attention that a more manicured park or garden might see. And with rare exception, we actually don't have gardens. Um, the beds are more architectural. They block wind and create spaces. They define views. And they're planted in ways that allow city people to have the experience of exploring a woodland path in a safe and accessible way. They're really beautiful, I think, but it's rare that someone would look directly at a bed. Um, and I don't say that in a derogatory fashion because their, their density makes them perfect habitat for migratory and, and uh, nesting birds. Um, birds will look for structure for the density that they can hide from predators first and then look for food availability when trying to select a habitat. So our ornamental thickets are really perfect for that and they're all over the park. And that's important when you look at where we're located. So this is Long Island, obviously, and this is New York City, and there's uh, Brooklyn Bridge Park. And just notice all this green, right? And then how brown it is when you get into the city. And then as you zoom in, it's even more just absolutely brown. Everything is brown except for these big splotches of green. And of course, we are now a tiny splotch of green. Um, and, um, and that's really important for birds that are migrating through the city um, because we are on the East Atlantic Flyway. This is the route for uh, bird migration in this region. And these are animals um, whose populations are often in decline um, due to specifically habitat destruction and climate change as well. But I'm sure you all saw the report last year that bird populations in North America are down 30% in the last 50 years. That's over 3 billion birds just gone out of, out of North America. And with urban development on the rise, uh, it's a pretty crazy situation. Currently, half of people in the world live in cities, and that number is expected to rise to 2 thirds by 2050 when the UN thinks the world population is gonna hit 9.8 billion people. So it's really imperative that we figure out ways to fit these animals and their migrations into our cities. And we at the park take the responsibility of doing that really seriously. But the park is managed first and foremost for people. Um, and even on the Hort team, we really prioritize the connections that we facilitate between people and the landscape. But there are also many sports fields and ball courts. And the park offers the ability to not only be near the water, but to actually get in it. And to explore many of the animals that live in the waters just off of Manhattan, which are really amazing. And some of those visitors will <laughs> come into the park. This was a harbor seal last year, which was really, really exciting. Um, I got on the radio and I was like, harbor seal at Pier 2, everyone go. It was a big crowd, <laughs> so cool. Um, but in addition to all of that, we really do strive to facilitate our visitors' meaningful interactions with nature, whether intentional or spontaneous, as well as manage our garden beds with the express purpose of fostering biodiversity. The park is made up mostly, but not exclusively, of native plants. And we only use organic management strategies. And we specifically seek, through research and experimentation, to manage garden spaces as wildlife habitat to the best of our ability. 
As I mentioned, we don't really have garden beds. We refer to the areas of plants that have specific environmental requirements as ecosystems. And that might sound kind of hokey, but it's really the best way to describe a salt marsh, which we have three of, um, or our freshwater wetlands, which run the length of a park and are filled with emergent aquatic plants. We also have what we call ornamental ecosystems, which have plants that are rough enough for a playground, but familiar enough for park entrances. We have these massive wet meadows and tiny dry meadows. We have lots and lots of meadows. Um, we have over, I calculated yesterday, we have over five acres of meadow in the park when you piece together all the small ones. And that's huge for a city to have a five acre, um, five acre of, of real grassland habitat, which is a really, really critical habitat. But the majority of the park is comprised of this woodland edge plant mix that we call the dense hedgerow, which when it was originally planted was a bunch of tiny trees and sun-loving perennials, which eventually grew and grew and eventually completely shaded out the sun plants and we've essentially replanted the entire understory of many big areas of the park, which has been a total pleasure. We use a lot of surprisingly rough and tumble spring ephemerals like Virginia bluebells and the celandine poppy. This can be an actual thug. Um, but it's really getting exciting now that we have the people to care for the landscape and we can get the levels of plant diversity that you might actually find in the forest. So these are the plantings that are really exciting to see for me. This is the work of Evelyn Manlove. Um, and this is a, a, a planting that's finally starting to gel. Um, and we're also able to include plants that you might not think of as urban park plants, like this ruin enemy. They're very delicate. And these could never have been included in the original planting plan. They have to be really grown and not specked. But we're finally getting to that point. And that's a really massive part of our work. We're taking all of these placed and planted plants and turning them into mature or maturing landscapes. And the way that we manage them is really, really different than traditional ornamental horticulture. And I think that of traditional horticulture as really wanting to tell plants what to do. And in our practice, and in, in that traditional practice, you would put a tree or a shrub someplace and you would come back in 50 years and you would expect to see it exactly there, except maybe slightly larger. And in our practice, there's a lot more freedom involved. We allow for movement and growth and even death we see the beds as really systems that the Hort team is trying to kickstart so that the natural cycles of the plants can take over and become more or less self-sustaining or at least self-regenerating. And that for us really starts with the soil. Our soils are all engineered, which means that a contractor takes specific percentages of sand, silt, and clay and organic matter and mixes them up and voila, you have soil. Um, we have over 20 different soil profiles in the park, many of them designed by the brilliant T. Fleischer. But the reality is that they aren't actually soils. They're just these mixtures of things, and they lack the structure, the biology, and the processes that create a living soil. And as you all know, urban soils have added stressors of compaction and salts and synthetic materials. So it's our job to turn all these mixed ingredients into actual soils so that they're not just holding plants upright. They have the ability to break down material and cycle nutrients, which is the, are the critical things. And one of the main tools that we use to do that are the leaves themselves, and the plants really themselves. The leave the leaves movement is really important for so many reasons. They're the mulch that your plants want to live in. And they're a weed suppressant and a temperature buffer. But there's this idea out there that deciduous trees will just throw their leaves away. And what they're actually doing in the fall is placing their leaves very gently on top of their root systems, where those leaves will break down and get reincorporated into the soil and can be reused by the tree like a slow motion carbon fountain. And those leaves are preventing starches and nutrients and complex molecules, all of which the trees use to build the soils that they want to live in. And so a lot of gardeners have it backwards. The plants are really making the soils for us, as opposed to us making the soils for them. 
Um, if you go out and you find a juniper in the middle of a meadow and you dig a hole right underneath it, the soil that you're going to find there is going to be at least an order of magnitude lower in pH than the soil even 10 feet away, because that juniper is going to be using all of the tools at its disposal, needle castings, root exudates, to lower the pH to create the environment that it wants to live in. It's like the, it's terraforming the land for the advancing meadow, or for the advancing forest and for itself as well. So what we're trying to do is let the plants at the park do that work by leaving all of the material that they produce on the ground from pruning to leaves. Even when we take down trees, we try to find ways to hide that material in the park so that people, um, in ways that still look nice and read as taken care of. Um, and this is what it looks like in winter in our park. That's what it looks like. And this really fits with our aesthetic. Um, in a more formal environment, a foot or two of mulch in the front can really clean it up. Um, when you have the front of your garden neat, what Mount Cuba calls a cue to care, you can get uh, away with a lot of benign neglect in the back. Um, but it's still a lot of work, right? This isn't a no-maintenance garden. Anytime we get a disease or certain pests, we have to map those areas, remove the duff, and keep that out. So it's still a lot of work. It's just a very different type of work um, than um, raking everything out. So the leaves are really critical for plant health, but they're also absolutely necessary for wildlife. Within that same duff layer of leaf, liver, leaf litter live a massive proportion of your overwintering insects and other wildlife. Beetles, bumblebees, butterflies, and moths all live in the layer of trapped heat that the leaves enclose in winter. And if you clean that away, you've literally just raked out a lot of the wildlife you're trying to attract. And therein lies the difference between organic gardening and ecological gardening. And in organic gardening practice, a lot of people will absolutely rake out those leaves, compost them, create compost, put it back in the garden. In ecological horticulture, we look at the life cycles of the specific organisms that are utilizing our gardens beds, and we try and organize our management practices around the life cycles wherever possible. Um, Duff layer overwinterers that we've found in our park are this beautiful morning cloak. They're some of the first butterflies out in the spring. They overwinter in the bark of trees or sometimes in people's garages as well. This is a giant polyphemus moth. You may have seen their, um, their cocoons. They're these big, giant cocoons that are often on sticks or often on the ground as well in the garden. Um, and then this is this beautiful red-banded hair streak. Um, that one of the gardeners, Pavel, found. Um, this little butterfly overwinters as a caterpillar, and it eats the fallen leaves of sumac over the course of the winter. So if you are raking up those leaves of sumac, you're raking up the food source that this butterfly needs. And, and we found this butterfly in the beds where we have the sumac as well. So those things are all really tied together. Um, and then there's a bunch of birds, like this oven bird, that only hang out when you have a duff layer for them to root around in, or this swamp sparrow. And it's like we're growing these plants to attract insects and growing the insects to attract the birds. And that's important because 95% of terrestrial birds uh, feed their, their babies exclusively on insects. And if you've read the reports coming out about the precipitous decline of insect populations, you'll understand why this is so important. Globally, in the last 35 years, entomologists um, estimate that we've seen an arthropod decrease by 45% in the whole world. Almost half of insects are gone. Um, and locally, studies are even worse. Um, two years ago, a study in a German forest showed that flying insects were down by 76%. And last year, a study found in a pristine forest in Puerto Rico that they had lost 60% of their insect population, along with 50 to 60% of insectivorous animals. They think that one's due to climate change because it's this pristine forest. So honestly, who knows what's going to help, if anything, really. But we are trying, um, to the best of our ability, to sustain the existing ecosystems and even build them, if necessary. And I'm really glad that we have help in that endeavor, because as much as I would like to be able to tell those two little brown birds apart, I cannot. Um, and this is Heather. She's our resident birder. She wrote a book about birds of Brooklyn Bridge Park that um, has now 162 species in it. 
Um, and she tells us who is visiting the park and what they're doing in the park and where they go. And it's really, really helpful information. So we know a certain hill is incredibly popular with um, birds because they eat the solidago seeds in the fall as they're migrating through. So we were able to do a planting of beautyberry to give them berries as well to eat in the fall when they're going through the park. And with her help, we were able to figure out when the migratory birds had left the park so that we could do the planting after they left so that we weren't disturbing their fall migration. So it's really, really specific. It's not just planting plants for birds. It's really looking at the animals and how, how they're using the park. And again, this is what we mean by ecological horticulture. Um, certainly, it's planting the right plants, which for us means the vast majority of native plants, um, really, really loosely defined. Um, but there's this idea floating around in horticulture and elsewhere that native plants are just too delicate for urban living. And I think that's always pretty funny because uh, we work with these plants every day. And um, we have things like the honey locust tree and panicum, which uh, this is a painted bunting that is still in Brooklyn Bridge Park. This is a female. So it's not the beautiful rainbow colors of the male that was in Prospect Park a couple of years ago. But this is a female that's still in our park. It's been hanging out for almost a month. And it's eating the seeds of panicum grasses. Um, and we're so fortunate to be able to provide that to the bird. But we see these native plants really thriving in these rough environments and, and out-competing weeds and exotics as well. So my email address is going to be at the end of the presentation. And I am so happy to send you our list of 200 native plants to the Northeast region that are really good at living in cities. I can, I'm really happy to share that with you. Um, but it's more than, I guess, ecological horticulture is more than just planting a plant and walking away. It's about these dynamics. Um, a coneflower surrounded by a foot of mulch is not doing anybody any good. It's like an animal that's living in the zoo. It needs its pollinator partners, its seed distributors, the various organisms that are eating its leaves. Um, and those are just the above ground relationships. It's about those dynamics between the various organisms. And so at the park during cutback, we leave the seed heads up for the birds in the fall, obviously, like many people do, which is great that that's now an acceptable practice. But we also leave the seed heads up for the spring when those migratory birds are coming back through. And that's a really important time for them to be eating seeds. Um, so we try and push our cutback operation as late as humanly possible in the spring. And our zone cutback is really based on when we can get into those areas the absolute latest before harming the plants. Um, and when we do cut back, we inspect the seed heads and we look for viable seeds. And anything that does have a viable seed head, we collect in a bucket. And then when we're done with the cutback, we'll throw it back out on the ground so that the birds coming through are able to have access to it or they're seeding in, which is another, another um, benefit. It looks like it um, is really labor intensive, but we've gotten really fast at it, and it's not, not a huge burden. And we found that um, asters and goldenrods, anything in asteraceae, those are the vast majority of plants that have viable seed heads on them in the spring, and that makes sense because the Audubon Society and the Xerxes Society always have those lists in their top tens for what's best for pollinators and what's, what's best for birds. So if you're at a loss for what to plant, definitely just go for some asters. Um, and our new big idea is just not cutting back at all. <laughs> um, a lot of our horticultural practices are based on just what people have done for hundreds of years. And we're not doing that anymore. We're interrogating why we're doing these practices and seeing how we can change them and if we need to change them. And certainly, some things do need to get cut back if they're in a high profile area, or there's a sanitary reason, or it just looks really beautiful. Um, but in a lot of areas, we don't need to do that. Um, we found that sedges always do better if they're not cut back. And some sedges, like palm sedges or this fox sedge, actually look way better when they're not cut back. Um, I read a paper last year out of St. Louis that uh, looked at neighborhood income and um, pollinator abundance. And they found that in the poorer neighborhoods, there were way more pollinators. Can you guess why that might be? No maintenance, right? They're not taking care of their landscapes. And so it's really like with the best of intentions, all of the disturbance that the gardeners are bringing into these landscapes are, is the main factor that's making it difficult for all of these organisms. So does that mean that we neglect the entire park and just let it go wild? Absolutely not. But what we do do is look for areas where we can just 
don't cut back every year, maybe cut back every couple years. Can we do something in the front and leave the back section just to go wild? How can we cultivate these little pockets of wildness in the park that act as that, that habitat? Um, and amazing things can happen when you just let, leave things alone. This is a weedy aster that showed up a few years ago and I didn't know what it was, so I posted it online and I got an ID and I almost had all of the gardeners rip it out because it was in the flower field and it turned out that it was a state-threatened salt marsh aster and it just doesn't have beautiful flowers. There are these tiny little flowers. So we were able to migrate it into our salt marshes where it is now thriving. And so it's this amazing process that it just showed up. It's an annual, nobody planted it, just, just showed up in the, in the park. Um, and uh, this is one of the park's gardeners. This is John Ford, um, and he's holding a katydid, and they make the ch ch ch, -ch sounds at night. And they lay their eggs on twigs and the stems of um, perennials in the park that, of course, we're leaving on the ground. And uh, this is a differential grasshopper that is very noisy in our various grasslands. And we didn't used to have these animals. And honestly, we didn't know that they were missing. But one day, the grasshoppers started calling. And we had the katydids at night. And it just completely changed the entire experience of being in the park. Um, because the animals are really integral to the experience of being out in a landscape for people, right? They give us those auditory cues that trigger relaxation or memory and say, this is what it means to be outside in the summer. Um, so we think that this is both important for wildlife and, and for the people who visit the park. We practice a lot of um, really well-known strategies for encouraging wildlife uh, as well. So we plant as many early spring flowering plants as possible, like this pussy willow and uh, Carolina silverbell. They feed the queen bumblebees that are waking up in the spring. And then we also plant as many late, late flowering plants as possible. This is Aster radon's favorite. This is the last one to go out of all of our, all of our park flowers. And they feed those same uh, queen bumblebees that are going to sleep for the fall. A full 30% of queen bumblebees don't make it through the winter because they haven't had enough forage um, to, to make it through hibernation. So it's really important work. Um, and this is a beautiful section of the park called the dunes out on Pier 6. And we have five different species of goldenrod in this picture. I won't make you guess them. But um, that could be fun, maybe later. Um, but they are all native to Long Island, right? So you can do really amazing, beautiful things with the plants that, that actually grow here. We plant lots of berries for the birds that overwinter with us, like uh, um, this winter berry, um, and bayberries, of course, which warblers just love. And John has started drilling holes in dead wood for bees, like this leaf cutter. And we leave as many rotting stumps um, and snags and even fallen trees now around the park as we can. And we're, we're trying to push it to the point where people may start to complain, but we haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> Thank goodness. Um, but of course, um, all of this biodiversity uh, brings wildlife that we don't want as well. Um, these are the oleander aphids uh, that came in on imported oleander and now they've escaped and are uh, really decimating a lot of milkweed populations out in the wild. And how we deal with common pests is another big difference between ecological horticulture and organic gardening. So in, traditional, in a traditional IPM practice, people are really striving to maintain like a pretty sterile environment. Um, and that's just not realistic, right? We um, what we're trying to do is build up the predators in the garden so that they are able to keep the herbivores in check. And there's just a balance, right, with that. And when you plant a plant, especially in a new park, there is a vacuum there. You've planted this resource for herbivores. Of course you're gonna get a big wave of herbivores that come in. And it's gonna take time to build up the predators that are gonna eat those herbivores. And if you keep on going in and washing away all of those herbivores, you're never gonna build up the numbers of the predators that you need to balance out your herbivores. So having really high thresholds is really important. And so what we do is when we have a population like this is that we look for those natural predators. And so these are the aphids. And you can see this one is brown, and this one is brown as well. And these two are what we call aphid mummies. And a tiny, tiny little wasp has laid her eggs in both of these mummy, in both of these aphids. Um, and in just a few days, a hole will open up and that wasp is gonna pop out 
and she's going to mate and then lay her eggs in dozens, if not hundreds, of additional aphids. So again, when we wash this away, even if it's with horticultural oil or what have you, you're, you're losing that resource. And this is me standing in a swamp milkweed patch of literally just standing in one, one place and just taking my iPhone and taking photos. And you have over here, come on guy, lacewing eggs, lacewing larvae, flower fly larvae, and ladybug larvae, right there, all eating the aphids, doing their job. Um, so this is an incredibly beneficial thing that you want to manage instead of um, just trying to get the aphids off your plants. Um, we also do release key predator species with the help of um, Fran Reedy, who's just amazing at this stuff, but we really try and keep releases to an absolute minimum. There's a lot of damage that can happen when you're moving animals around the country and some really bad practices that have happened, especially in the past with things like ladybugs. So we try to attract, not release, as much as possible. Um, but some pest issues of key predator, of key uh, species really um, uh, can't be solved. Uh, by with our methods like the cedar apple rust on our amelink ear. Um, there's just nothing we can do with our, with our methods. Um, and so um, we practice tough love and um, we let the plants fight it out and sometimes we let them die. And that, that just is what it is. Um, but our thresholds are sky high, and, which is great. It's not a botanical garden. Um, and I have the luxury of just convincing myself that these taxodium midge galls are rather ornamental. Um, <laughs> Right? <laughs> They're pretty. Um, and uh, we've had great successes with these strategies so far. So this is one of our many catalpa trees, which, as you know, get covered with aphids and rain honeydew um, in the summer. And a long time ago, we were encouraged to spray them to get rid of the aphids, and we didn't. And then one day, after telling a bunch of volunteers about the various ladybugs of the park, I came in and I found this on my desk. Um, and this is the two-spotted lady beetle. And this little ladybug hadn't been seen in New York City in 30 years. And I'm happy to report that it has a completely stable population in Brooklyn Bridge Park and is spreading all over the place. Because this little ladybug is teeny, teeny, tiny. And she eats those teeny, tiny aphids that are on your catalpa. And so again, get rid of the aphids, you get rid of the ladybugs. Um, so these are amazing things. And it's worth it to have the, the damage of the aphids when you, when you get to see these processes. It makes the landscape so much more meaningful. Um, and we also do a lot of, I think, really exciting and experimental um, practices to attract wildlife. A lot of it happens in what is our flower field on Pier 6. It's essentially a native wildflower garden, and it's one of our only real gardens in the park. It's a solid half acre, which is great because that high edge to area ratio means that animals can get away from us. Um, and that's really important for things like ground nesting birds, which are just not going to nest in an area where people are walking through. Um, the flower field has these massive swaths of flowers, which are wonderful for attracting butterflies. They, butterflies can pick up the volatile organic compounds that their host plants are sending out into the air from miles away. They're very, very sensitive. So they can tell if you've planted milkweed, but they can also tell how much milkweed you've planted. So we have thousands and thousands of square feet of milkweed, and so we have, as a direct result, just this absolutely extravagant number of monarch butterflies if you come to the park in late summer. It's really just these clouds of monarchs flying over the meadow. Um, and I love this picture so much because it really shows this supposed juxtaposition of a really highly functioning monarch habitat in the middle of New York City, that these two things can really fit together quite well. Um, and da, da, da. the nice thing about our monarchs and the flower field in the park in general is that they're, they're not just stopping by for a drink of nectar, right? Getting butterflies to visit your flowers is comparatively easy, just having them stop and, and, and drink the nectar from a flower. But having them actually reproducing in the garden beds is our goal. That's always the thing that we're looking for. Um, and so one of the things we have to do in order to do that is when we buy plants, we have to make sure that they are not treated with systemic insecticides that are literally designed to kill the animals we're trying to attract. And that is, in this day and age, you would think would be pretty easy, and it is not. It's very, very difficult. And we have to pull favors with nurseries, check and double check to make sure that they haven't sprayed something for thrips. Um, so I encourage you to have those conversations, have those difficult conversations with your suppliers, and we can all together try 
to up the numbers of plants that we could put in our garden. And it's impossible, it's really, really difficult. You can't get organically grown native plants, right? The nursery production system just isn't, isn't there yet. But I think that this, um, just not having systemic insecticides is something that is really possible these days. Um, and we had, we had so many monarchs in the park that, um, that one of the gardeners, again, Pavel, started collecting the eggs and then hatching them out in our lab. And he was able this year, this is his second year doing it, he was able to e-close more than 100 monarchs and release them. Um, and that's him with one of his monarchs. And then we were able to tag them as well. You can see the little tags on the monarch wing. Um, and we tagged over 200 this year that are all flying across the country and we can track them through Monarch Watch um, and watch their travels to Mexico and back, hopefully. We'll see what happens. Um, and, but we wanted to know what else was in the park. So a few years ago, we worked uh, with Macaulay College to do a bio blitz. So we wanted to get baseline information for all of the organisms that are in the park. So we had 400 students, dozens and dozens of volunteers, many employees of the park, all worked together for 48 hours to just canvas, to collect things and identify things. And we identified hundreds of species in the park, even though, unfortunately, it rained. Um, and it was really amazing. And even since then, we've been working with local entomologists, with the Natural History Museum, um, to, and the Wildlife Conservation Society uh, to really understand not only who is using the park for, uh, from organisms, but also what their life cycles are like and how specifically they're using specific plants in the park as well. And so this is Bella. Um, she's the gardener for Pier 6 for the flower field, and she's holding a small carpenter bee. And um, during uh, cutback, we worked with entomologists to learn about what kind of stems they look for. And what they're looking for is a stem that has a pith that's either hollow or has a one-eighth of an inch kind of spongy material in it. And that's where they will go in and lay their eggs and even overwinter. So that's, again, a lot of asters. Same thing with that little hollow pith. And then hydrangeas as well. So um, we leave those stems up. And we do cutback. We don't do a clear cut. We leave those stems up uh, 18 inches was the height that we found was the, if you cut them too short, they're not going to recognize that as nest material. And so 18 inches is the height that we found that it actually works and they'll, they'll visit them. And that was with um, Heather Holm, who's a fantastic bee specialist. And so this is the look, right? And this isn't a look for every garden, um, but I really like it. I think it actually looks better than a clear cut. And I think it's part of our job to make aesthetic changes like this more acceptable, just like leaving plants up over the winter used to not be acceptable, right? And so stuff like this, it's part of our job to make this accessible, uh, acceptable as well. Um, we, all, we all have bumblebees in New York City. They're, um, they're a well-loved organism for little kids and everybody. I feel like they're the teddy bears of the insect world. Um, and um, we have a bunch of them in the park. We have quite a few species. And many of them, if not most of them, live at the base of bunch grasses. And they live, right, here's our um, uncut back bunch grass, a little blue stem. They live right in there. Um, and for overwintering. And when we do our normal cutback for the blue stem, we cut off all of this material, right? That's like a, a nice little meatball cutback blue stem. And we realize that we're not only destroying their habitat when we do that, we're actually stepping on them. This is because this is the place that they're, they're nesting. And so we have this new technique um, where we just leave this little skirt, right? Leave that little skirt at the base of the bunch, bunch grass and just cut off that top growth and maybe comb through it to take out some of the dead material. Um, but we're trying to leave this on. So this is a new technique. We haven't, there's, we don't really practice, you know, I like to do, I like to practice what we call bad science, where we can find out information, but we're not actually publishing anything. Um, but we're still trying to figure out whether or not this is actually effective technique. Um, so if any of you start practicing it and, and see any results, I'd absolutely love to hear about it. Um, and this is really important, uh, because this summer, Pavel confirmed, that we have this lady in the park. And this is a state endangered bumblebee. This is Bombus fervidus, the great northern bumblebee, uh, golden northern bumblebee. And it's amazing. There's, this is an endangered animal living in a public park in the, bit, in the middle of the largest city in the entire uh, country. It's just absolutely incredible to me. And I love it because I'm so used to thinking of cities as ecologically destitute. 
Um, but it's marvelous to see the city as a possible refuge, because for this bee and certain others as well, they're very sensitive to pesticides, to herbicides, and the diseases from agriculturally managed bumblebees. So for them, in New York City, this is actually a safer place than rural New York. This is a safer place than suburbia with all the chemicals there. So it's wonderful to really think of the possibility of cities as refugees for, for certain, certain animals. And so we just started tracking their populations. They're abundant in the park, but we're trying to figure out a lot more about them and we'll see what we find. Um, rarely, we take a slightly more heavy-handed approach to, um, to our managing of wildlife. We are overrun with praying mantids from Asia, Europe, and North America. And the bigger invasive ones eat our butterflies and they eat our native mantids and literally everything else. You can find them really easily in the flower field because there's often a pile of monarch wings right underneath of them. It's amazing. Um, and so uh, after reading about Mount Cuba's efforts um, and making sure the gardeners were comfortable with it, we started culling the egg casings of the invasive mantids over the course of the winter. Um, and this was really hard in, uh, to do because there's not a lot of information about what these egg casings look like. And um, Pavel and Bella worked on this big project uh, to do this work and also to make this handy guide. And you can see here, this is our native Carolina mantis right here, a very thin, um, egg, egg casing that is often white with these two stripes. And then these are the ones that you find in your garden, right? These are both invasive. Um, and these are, this is the giant Chinese mantis and this is a European mantis. And so a lot of gardeners, again, organic gardening, so excited for praying mantids, just like really thrilled about it. Ecological gardening, looking at how these organisms are interacting in our ecosystem, what's really beneficial, what isn't. Um, of course, the hubris can get a little dizzying. Uh, we're not actually trying to play God or turn back the clock, but we are trying to do good and minimize harm in the landscape. And mostly we take a lighter touch. Um, but I did want to mention that this is, this is the second year that we've been working on this. And again, bad science, you know, nothing's being properly surveyed, but um, the gardeners have seen a huge uptick in Carolina mantids and a real decrease of the invasive mantids in the park as well. Um, and, but again, normally we don't do extreme measures like that. We want, normally we do things like, we want to attract hummingbirds, so we plant every single red and yellow tubular flower that is native to the region. Um, and these are all the hummingbird, hummingbird plants that they like to drink from. And um, we haven't, uh, we hadn't seen them for years. I think it took like five years, but we saw the first one. I saw my first hummingbird in the park uh, about a year ago, and I got so excited, I literally yelled, enjoy. Um, and they're only stopping by right now, but we're hoping that eventually they're nest. And they were on um, a rose mallow, or a swamp mallow. That's where we, um, we found them in the park, which was so exciting. Um, but these are the seed heads of an enemy of Virginiana. This is the tall thimbleweed. And the, the hummingbirds will use the silken threads of the tall thimbleweed in the spring to weave their nests together. They use lichen and these plant materials and spider silk and this like beautiful little spell of a nest. Um, and so we're just leaving them up. They look beautiful in the landscape and maybe we can convince some of these hummingbirds uh, to actually nest in the landscape. We've had other really wonderful results like this clear wing hawk moth that is nectaring on Minarda fistulosa. We're excited to see them here because this is the pollinator partner for this plant. Um, and you can see how the plant's reproductive organs here are when the uh, moth puts her uh, proboscis all the way in to the flower, the reproductive parts of this plant are gonna bop her on the head. Um, and then she'll go and then pollinate that plant. Um, and many other insects will visit this flower, but only this hawk moth is actually gonna pollinate it. The only other insect that's big enough to do this job is the carpenter bee. Um, and you can see here that she is not pollinating anything. She's bypassing the uh, reproductive organs here and she's cut a hole in the floret um, and is just drinking the nectar straight through. She's nectar robbing that flower. So, um, so she's not, and it, which is great, right? There's enough, but she's not actually pollinating the flower. Only this, this um, these two organisms will work together like that, which is amazing. It's really wonderful to see because it means that this plant gets to have sex. Um, and sexual reproduction means that the plant can mutate if inclined and actually evolve. Um, and it can evolve in our park, which is cool, but it's also really important. 
um, because with climate change, with environmental disturbance, Evolution is how plants stay in one place. It's one of the tools they have for not being able to move around is changing and adapting with the changing climates. And again, it's all about these dynamics, right? These relationships between these organisms. Um, so I, I just love it because it's so much more beautiful to me to consider this than to just look at a flower or a butterfly on their own, to really think about the way that they're interacting and what they're doing together. And I think people like to think of insects as being really mechanically minded, but I love to consider how flowers are literally the manifested desires of all of their pollinator, pollinator partners over millennia. They're the best artists that this plant has, planet has ever seen. Um, and I really think about that. Every time I look at a flower, I think how grateful I am to the pollinator. Um, and of course, we also have the snowberry plant, which is the host plant for that um, hawk moth. So the caterpillar of the hawk moth also has the plants on site that are gonna support that part of its life cycle too. It's not just about the flowers. We're trying to build up those populations um, and create those, those circles. We also grow uh, bloodroot, like many of you. And um, the flowers that we all love um, are bumblebee pollinated for those queen bumblebees waking up in spring. But the seeds are ant distributed. And each seed has this little fatty tissue on it that an ant will take a seed and bring it into their nest and eat the fatty tissue which triggers seed germination. And that seed is then in this perfect fertile place where then um, it can germinate and grow. And when we did our bio blitz, we found that we have the ant species in the park that does this work with the bloodroot, which is really, really exciting. And as a direct result of that, we've got baby bloodroot now growing in the park. And we've been able to see that evolve over time. We didn't used to have this because the seeds wouldn't germinate. And now we can actually see it growing and being distributed around, which is really, really marvelous. Um, and so to wrap up, um, we don't really have a real like process, an official process for doing this kind of work, but one way it happened last year um, is that Pavel posted a new butterfly to a website called iNaturalist. If you're not familiar with iNaturalist, I really can't recommend uh, more that you check it out. Um, you can post every possible organism onto this website, and like 15 nerds will compete to ID it the fastest. So you can use it to like look at what are the butterflies in your area. You can also use it as an identification tool if you want to identify a weed, or even tracking diseases. You can use it for that as well. It's really, really helpful. So Pavel identifies this butterfly. I'm tracking all the iNaturalist stuff in the park. Over lunch one day, I spend literally two minutes researching what this is. It's the common sooty wing, which is not actually that common. Um, and I find that its host plant is actually lamb's quarters. And so that's um, something that is interesting. I'm obviously not going to recommend that we leave all of the lamb's quarters uh, in the entire park. But what we do do is that when we are going to go in and weed lamb's quarters, we look very quickly and see if we can find any signs of life. And lo and behold, we do. It's like abundantly obvious when you look at a, a plant, if you can see these butterfly eggs. So Pavel brings them into the lab, hatches out the caterpillars, um, they uh, pupate um, and eclose, and then we release them back in, into the park. Um, so we're not you know, letting everything go wild and neglect the park, but we are really trying to um, help the animals that we can and minimizing the harm that we're doing with our practices. We also have little areas of, um, of, uh, of the plant that we're trying to, to manage in the park as well. Um, we know that we've got American lady butterflies in the park, so now we're planting pussy toes, uh, which is their host plant that they can reproduce on. And this is uh, kind of fuzzy because it's a still from a video. I can't tell you how quickly these butterflies found these plants when we opened, um, when we opened the box. They literally, um, they literally just flew in from everywhere. And when we were driving the truck down the greenway to get to the planting site, there was a cloud of butterflies <laughs> following. And this is a still from a video. You can see my hand there. I'm holding the pot. And this butterfly is literally ovipositing all over the plant. I'm just watching her do this. She's like so desperate for her host plant. But this just isn't available in New York City. So I encourage everybody to run out and um, plant a ton of pussy toes. It was actually fascinating that we, we planted them in the spring. They got covered with eggs. The butterflies, the, the caterpillars hatched. And they were so voracious that they ate all the plants and killed them and then all died. 
so, so now we're trying to plant them in the fall so that they can get rooted in and have, be established before the butterfly onslaught comes. So it's a lot of really interesting stuff like this. Um, and this is a pearl crescent um, that uh, their host plant is the smooth aster, aster lavis, and they also overwinter as caterpillars at the base of this, uh, the, the evergreen basil rosette of this plant. So we know as we're going through and doing cutback, don't step on the smooth asters. We know that there's animals in there and we want to support them. And also don't rake out the duff from those areas as well. Um, and one of the reasons that we're uh, able to do uh, this work um, is, um, is because our Hort crew is passionate and motivated. Um, this is the work of a whole group of people all working together to figure out these strategies. And a lot of this information was collected by them and a lot of this work was done by them. It's just my job to share it. Um, and one of the reasons that we have this wonderful team is because we invest in them. Park leadership values the people who are holding hoses and the people who are doing research, as well as the people painting benches and removing graffiti. And we really try to work with them to give them the room to follow their interests wherever possible. And that sounds so obvious, but in an environment where manual labor has been systematically and strategically devalued, it's actually pretty radical to say, these jobs are important. You're doing valuable work. We're going to pay you well and treat you with respect. And you know, I feel so fortunate to be able to say this because I've worked in environments where this wasn't the case, and we were never able to do the sort of work that we're able to do now. Because you can't order somebody to study a butterfly or chase one around the park. You have to educate them and inspire them and then give them the space to follow their own passions. Um, you may wonder why we focus so much on butterflies, and it's because everybody loves them. I personally happen to prefer moths, but butterflies are a gateway insect. And I believe that they so clearly and beautifully illustrate the possible functionality of our gardens. And the reality is that everybody wants them around, but you just don't get butterflies without the caterpillars, and you don't get the caterpillars without the host plants. Um, and I think the broader point here is that we don't have to pick between the butterflies or the people. We have 5 million people who come through the park, well over 5 million people who come through the park each year, and the vast, vast majority of them have no idea that any of this stuff is happening all around them. So after all those pretty pictures, I just want to end on this one. Uh, because everything you just saw was essentially done on top of a series of empty parking lots, um, which is amazing considering how easily this work could happen if you have real soil to start with, even if it's in the middle of New York City. Because no matter where you start from, we're all going to need to do this work more often um, as the planet gets developed and the climate changes. A lot of people might say this is just mopping the deck of the Titanic, but quite frankly, it gives me hope that we can use horticulture to help solve the larger issues in the world. And with that, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.